I um, I'm excited about this topic. Uh, we're uh, getting to a study here on uh, singleness, uh, biblical theology of singleness. And um, <clears throat> I, I sent an email yesterday kind of encouraging the whole church to come to this because I think uh, both married and single people need to, to, to hear and to know what the scripture talks about it. I think there is just so much misunderstanding and um, I mean, I was single for the longest time in my life. Right now, I'm not, not that old, but for the longest time I have been single. And so I uh, had, during my time in school, opportunity to write papers on this topic from the historical standpoint, from the theological standpoint. And um, it, it is pretty amazing as you talk to people in the church um, to hear something that if you were to, to ask them theologically, is this what you believe? They would say, absolutely not. Well, but your comments, your thoughts here, <laughs> it, it's conveying this. And so I'm excited for us to have this discussion. Um, I, what I did this time, um, I didn't prep my own notes for the most part. I just thought uh, Craig Marshall, is a biblical counselor, he put together this study here um, and he gave it a conference in, um, in California. It's an IBCD conference, Summer Institute. And they, they had a conference that year in 2014 about how to deal biblically with the past. And this lecture he had, it was how uh, helping singles to think biblically about the past, present, and future. So I was like, I can't put anything better than this. I think it's <laughs> pretty, pretty complete. And obviously, I'll have my own comments, my own illustrations and thoughts here. Um, but I thought this study was pretty thorough. Um, another one that I can even get you if you'd like to read the chapter by Andreas Kostenberger and David Jones, uh, these theologians, they wrote a book on, uh, titled God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation. And the chapter that he has on singleness is very good both theologically, biblically, and um, even discussing some of the issues that uh, singles face and from, from a theological standpoint. How do you, you help them to think biblically? So with no more um, delays, let's start in prayer and um, ask for the Lord's blessing over our time here. Dear Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word that is complete, that is thorough, and addresses everything concerning life and godliness. Lord, we're thankful that you didn't leave us without instruction. You didn't leave your people wondering what they should um, <clears throat> think about and what they should say on how they should act. You have given us a specific instructions. And in this area of singleness, Lord, we're so thankful that you also have left um, much instruction. Just help us, Lord, to... Um, one, have an, an open mind um, to, to think on how we can help singles and um, how can we be an encouragement to them as a church um, and not discourage them in any way we can by um, 
giving policy views of what you have established for, for us as, as your people. Pray that you bless our time here in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'd like to start with a little discussion, um, just hearing from you some of the misconceptions, some um, things that you hear about singles that we all know it's wrong, but what you know, sometimes we say it or we hear it from um, our, some of our family members. What do, you, what do you normally, Some can you think of any, Andrew? Yeah, there must be something wrong with you. You're not getting married. What, what, what is wrong with you? It's, um, and, you know, um, I... I think with anything in life, I wouldn't say just with singles, uh, we always should be searching our hearts to know if there's something wrong. Or, but I think that pointedly to say, oh, there's something wrong with you, you need to be fixed. Right? Oh, let me fix you up. <laughs> I, I heard that a few times. What else? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most common, um, and I'm, I'm guilt as charged. I, I, I think I have said some of those comments myself. Oh, you have too high standards and, um, and too picky, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't to me, per se. No, actually, I, I got the better end on this deal. <laughs> I married up, definitely. Um. What else? What other things? They, oh, yeah, they, they're, they're single just because they want to. And, and as we're going to see, that there are people that genuinely want to be that and uh, to be single for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and we'll see that in the, some of the, the passages, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but just presuming that they're single because it is their desire, that, that is also a wrong uh, way of going about this. Well, other thoughts, other um, things that we, Andrew. <laughs> hmm. Yep, they just haven't met the right one. And, and we did talk about some of, uh, some of that in our uh, class on biblical decision making, right? Is there just a one person for you? Um, the whole concept of a soulmate, I, it's a pagan concept that we, are, we, are, we, we have been divided, the this, this soul, and you have to find the soulmate that completes you exactly. Well, biblically speaking, um, God does give us directives for you know, marrying, the, marrying a believer, uh, a faithful person in Christ, but really there is a lot of freedom who you can choose within that. We kind of, a little bit of a review of what we've seen on decision-making. Caitlin. Yeah, very good, very good, Caitlin. I, oh my goodness, I just remember my mother saying that a lot. <laughs> and and I, it's good intentions. Well, can you say, though, that God in his sovereign plan has, has planned for us to meet someone? I think it is okay for us to say, well, in God's sovereignty, he might have that, but he might not. But for you to say categorically that you're, I can see the intention of us trying to comfort someone that might be struggling and saying, 
something like that, Caitlin. Um, but it, it is not. It, it, you're not God. You, you don't know. <laughs> Shelly? Mm. And I think that is, you know, Shelly just said, you're not complete un- until you're married. I think that is one of the most dangerous comments because it, it is it conveying the idea that in, apart from marriage, we can't be mature, we can't um, be fulfilled as a human being. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of quotes in here that I, I, I didn't have the time to go over them. It was a previous paper that I wrote where John Piper talks about that. And it's like, well, he, the most perfect man that ever lived, and, and he was complete in every way possible, uh, not just because he was God, he was a perfect human. He never married. Um, so for us to convey this idea that, well, someone's not going to be mature until, until they get married, I, I think it is very, very concerning. Uh, let me say this. There is a lot of blessings of marriage, and, and my goal in our time discussing here is not to discourage one way or the other, but to paint a complete picture that is Scripture give us of both sides, um, not to, to be pushing people toward one side or the other. God has appointed every person according to his will. And so for, uh, yeah, so this, this whole thing of, of, of being complete or wanting to be mature, uh, two books that I want to encourage uh, both singles and married to read um, would be the uh, Not Yet Married by Marshall Siegel. And he talks about some lies that we believe or that people tell us about singleness. It's really good. It's a, um, a guide for those that are single and they're pursuing uh, marriage too. So some uh, biblical ways of thinking about dating and uh, that I think it's a very balanced, um, giving some guidance uh, for single people. And then also uh, encouragement from scripture. Um, and one of the things that, he, he does address one of the lies is that, oh, I am not going to get serious until I, I am married or I have a family. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, have, I'll, I'll be forced to mature. And yes, I, I can admit that there is certain things that uh, you, you grow when uh, you're living with another sinner. But that doesn't mean that those that they are not married uh, can't have uh, a spiritual growth. Um, so, I mean, you see the Apostle Paul, Timothy, they were instructing the church on how they should conduct and behave themselves, and yet they had, you know, perfect authority to teach that um, and to live that out. So, all right. Now let's get to Scripture. I think that is um, where we really want to lean on here. Um, The Old Testament, I want to see some of this. Um, how it was in the Old Testament, how it is in the New Testament, and then from there, we'll have some discussion. So if you're following there, some, I'm, I might be a little bit different because I included here um, the book by Kostenberger. Um, so in your notes, you have most of the passages there, but you can edit. So first point there is a marriage and procreation were essential 
um, for uh, bringing about offspring. They were viewed as an indication of, of God's blessing. Deuteronomy 7, um, barrenness was a sign of God's curse. And Deuteronomy 28. Um, now, even all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the what we call the proto-gospel, the gospel that a seed of a woman would bring redemption, it, that promise of, of offspring, you know, it was very connected to physical um, descendants. Um, and then from there on, we start reading on the covenant, the old covenants. So what would happen in the Old Testament is that unmarried young man or woman, um, fathers typically arranged for their marriage of their children to suitable partners. Uh, in Genesis 24, you see the example of Jacob, Judges 14, and um, they were even given instructions in the law on how a parent was supposed to, to carry out that task with their unmarried children. They sought to protect their daughters from male predators to ensure that they would marry as virgins, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 22, and provided their daughters with a dowry which would be returned to the daughters if the marriage failed. So the second point is marriage and procreation were essential for bringing up offspring, um, Christ, um, through whom the world would be blessed. Um, we have here another one. Marriage and procreation were essential to maintaining one's inheritance in the land. So it was, it, as most things in the Old Covenant, it was very attached to the land and their staying in the land. Marriage was an integral part of the Old Testament covenants, starting with God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, confirmed in Genesis 15, 18, and 22, and then continuing through the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the entire family inheritance and structure in the Old Testament times was predicted upon the centrality of the offspring blessing relationship. So you will see a lot of the word um, offspring sometimes translating seeds in plural. Whenever it's talking specifically about the seed is referring to the seed of a woman, Christ would come to deliver us. But whenever it's seeds, it's just um, offsprings and, and, and descendants. The liberate uh, marriage provides for a continuation of the family name, and we see that with Ruth. Now, even in the Old Testament, um, and I, I think I put that, I don't know if I put this on your notes. Remarkably, however, um, in Isaiah and the prophets, we begin to see hints of a new paradigm of fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessings in the New Covenant. So, for this one, I want us to go there. Um, let's open the scripture to Isaiah chapter 53. And in this section in particular, um, this section in particular, you will see a transition of speaking of uh, the new covenant, the, the covenant to come that will be inaugurated by the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> so we're all familiar with Isaiah 53, describing, you know, the Lord's sacrifice and that he came to atone for our sins. Um, verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, chasti uh, the chastis 
the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. I want to draw your attention to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, and if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, we all know that Isaiah 53 is speaking about the Messiah, speaking about Christ, the Christ that came to atone for our sins. Like, I mean, I, I need no discussion on that. And it says that he will see, he, that Messiah, the Christ that would be sacrificed, he would see his offspring. Now, did Christ have any children when he was here on earth? No, he didn't. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he was killed, and, and he died before he could marry, and I don't think Christ necessarily needed to marry to have offspring, um, because um, in him all the families will be blessed. Now, if you keep continue reading on chapter 54, 55, and 56, um, with prophecy, it's... Is a is a kind of the, the hard thing where we we take it literal. We this is exactly what it's saying here, unless they use a figurative language. And with chapter fifty four, he's um, having this song here of the barren woman. Um, and as you keep reading, he's talking about them as the daughter of Zion. So he's specifically talking about Israel. And then as you keep reading the following chapters, he will also include Gentiles in this new covenant with God. All right. So I'm going to read the notes here from Kostenberger based on this passage. The third servant song of Isaiah, we read it that a while the suffering servant would be cut off of the land of the living, he would nonetheless see his offspring. Thus the new blessings come out not through physical offspring, but through offspring raised up by God himself. This natural, supernatural birth is made possible through the vicarious sacrifice of the servant of the Lord. Strikingly, the following chapter of Isaiah follows with the song of the barren woman who rejoices um, the children of the desolate one who will be more than the children of the one who is married. So let's just read it. Shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, and spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs. Where you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations, and they will resettle the desolate cities. So it's specifically talking about Israel and the ones that are not. He's literally speaking of barren people in the land of Israel that have no physical descendants. They'll have this descendants that even though they can't bear physically, they will have descendants. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced, but you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Now, um, I forgot to just mention this briefly here. 
I did have a little chart um, that I put there for you from uh, kind of a summary of categories of singleness. So in the Old Testament, in light of Genesis 2.24, marriage is treated as the norm, and singleness is generally viewed as undesirable, primarily because of not being able to bear descendants. So someone that is barren they f- was seen as a curse. But there were categories of singles in the Old Testament. So there were the widow people that lost their spouses, obviously. There were the eunuchs, those that were made um, they were castrated. They couldn't have children. They were the barren women. We just we saw the story of one. Hannah was one. The Lord opened her womb later. And those who could not marry for reasons of disease or economic difficulty. Someone with leprosy, for instance. They couldn't marry because they were impure. Nobody could even approach them. And then there were those with divine call, like the prophet Jeremiah, that he was specifically told not to marry. Those were also rare situations. They were the divorced men and women. And then there were young men and women prior to marriage, and as I said, normally the parents would arrange for them to, um, to have that relationship. So even in Isaiah 54 here that we just read, we see two categories. We see the, the barren woman, those that are not able to have children, and then we see those that are widow. And both will be seen in the Lord's eye as a possibility of having descendants, even though they're not able to bear descendants. All right, going back to our study here. So strikingly, the following chapter in Isaiah follows with the song of the barren woman who rejoices the children of the desolate, one who will be more than the children of uh, the one who is married, in verse 1. Alec Mortier explained a servant song symbolizes entry into a blessing provided by another's efforts. So here the barren woman sings not because she ceased to be barren, but because the Lord has acted in his servant with the effect that his seed become her children and her son. So his seed there is referring to uh, verse 10, where it says that his offspring. Um, thus, the gathering of the family cannot be naturally explained. Um, so the Lord's people are created by supernatural birth on this new covenant. The woman's offspring will possess the nations, um, chapter f- uh, verse 3, and the Lord is her husband, who is embracing her with an everlasting love. What is more, in, Is- in then that Isaiah 56, then you have an inclusion of eunuchs. They are not from the people of Israel, that they decided, even though they were not from the people of Israel, they decided to join themselves to the people of Israel in their faith to the Lord. Now, we have been studying uh, recently Ephesians chapter 2, and we see that the Lord came to preach the gospel, the good news to both Jews and Gentiles. And with the new covenant, now the Gentiles are included also on that promise of salvation. So chapter 56 um, of Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteous, for my salvation is about to come. Specifically talking about the new covenant, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is a man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from uh, profaning the Sabbath, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not not the foreigners 
who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Not let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. He's specifically talking about the fact that they couldn't have children, like a tree. They couldn't have, they couldn't bear fruit. For thus says the Lord that to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths to choose to please me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, a name better than the sons, that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. So in the comment here to the eunuch, who because of his typical defects had been cut off the Lord's assembly, now is granted access to the restored temple. He who was a dry tree without children now is given a name that is better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Daniel Act notes, uh, the passage is a reminder for single people that those without children, that the legacy that they have as a member of God's eternal house is something far superior to any physical legacy that children and offspring can provide. God himself is their portion. I think about Jeremiah, uh, he never got married in Lamentations chapter 3, 24. He says, the Lord is my portion. He is everything I need. The offspring theme here emerges in Isaiah in the new covenant as it represents. Then, like observes, we appear in a dramatic fashion in the New Testament. Now, I want to transition um, to the New Testament teaching, and I'll just continue reading this continuity because Isaiah is the only part that is kind of hinting at of some blessing in singleness that. That was not the fact at all in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Isaiah is talking about the future when this new covenant comes, things that will start to shift. Now we switch to the new covenant. Um, in Galatians 3, Paul makes clear that the God's covenant's blessing are to be enjoyed in Christ through faith by spiritual offspring, the children of the promise. Talks about Abraham and how we, how we are connected to Abraham. We're not Jewish people. We're not born. We're not descendants of Abraham. And how come he is our father? Well, in the faith, he is the father. Romans 9, the same. Um, so actually, I'm going to go there just to make sure. In chapter 9, specifically talking about the promises of God to Israel, Paul adds that membership in the covenant is not merely a result of being a physical descendant of Abraham, but a matter of being spiritual offspring through faith in Christ. Verse 6, but it is not through the word of God, the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel are who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded of as descendants. So you see here, it's not just because someone was a physical descendant of a Jewish person that they were considered, they automatically considered children of God. On the, on the contrary, those from Israel that have trusted in Christ, they were descendants of Israel. Now, that's not replacement theology. We're not replacing the church with Israel, but we are showing that there is a, a shift in the paradigm for this 
you know, physical blessing, it is extended also to his spiritual blessings. All right, let me continue here. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, inheritance, the inheritance language is applied to a spiritual rather than natural offspring. Ephesians 1, 14 and 18, chapter 5, uh, 5, 1 Peter 1, 3, 4. With regard to Jesus' life and teaching, his message to Nicodemus focused on the on necessity of a new spiritual birth, even for Jews. John 3, 3. As developed at some length in chapter 6 above, Jesus repeatedly emphasized the spiritual nature of those who would be included among his followers and in his family, in contrast to natural flesh and blood ties. Um, let's go to Matthew 12. It's one of the passages here. And I'll, I'll come back to this again, but I, so we have these passages already in mind. Um, you will remember when... Um, some of Jesus' family came looking for him. Um, we're looking at Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 46. There's a change in the relationship. So while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Sounds kind of insensitive, right? <laughs> it's like, what? What is Jesus talking about here? And he's stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's where you start seeing here the shift of the importance of spiritual family rather than your birth family. It doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. You know, you see God has instructions for families in Ephesians, in Peter, First Peter, we, we have instructions for that. He's not belittling the fact that family is important, but now with the new covenant, the spiritual family has this greater bond. Then um, Luke 14, 26 is the parallel passage, 18, 28. Uh, while not undermining the traditional family structure, Jesus did elevate the kingdom of God as of supreme significance that demanded from his followers a loyalty that exceeded even that required by one's natural family. Jesus also taught that there would be no more marriage in heaven. Uh, Luke 20, 34, 36. How about someone uh, read that for me? Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they have all that story about the resurrection. You know, this person that has been married to multiple, um, he had multiple wives, and then eventually, who he's going to be married to? No, the wife I had. The teacher, uh, some men's brothers dies, have no wife, and he's childless, and his brother should marry his wife. So this wife, this woman that married multiple people, right, they, because their husbands died, then in the resurrection, they're posing the question to Jesus, who are they going to be married to? And here's what Jesus answered. Someone can read that one for us. Luke 21, uh, verses 34 through um, 30, 38. You can read all the... All right. 
So in the resurrection, when people will be raised from the dead, they are not going to be married. Um, we're all going to be like angels. So I know that it hurts for some of us that are married, that we, you feel like, oh, I'm not going to be. Um, I, I think some, some married people, I remember having conversations in Brazil about this. It's almost like they, oh, are well, we going to have a house next to each other? Can we, you know, like just keep that? With, no, that, that, that's not part of that age. Jesus speaks of, of three classes then. Um, oh, actually, moving here. Um, in Matthew 19, the other passage that I want to read, 19, uh, 11, and 12. And then someone found it, they can read it. Matthew 19, 11, and 12. 18, 19. Oh, 10 to 12. All right, so you can read that, Andrew. Okay, thank you. I just realized that I was looking intently at chapter 18, thinking it was 19. I was like, no, it's not here. <laughs> but Jesus speaks of three classes of eunuchs. I need to pay attention here. There are those who are eunuchs by birth, so they're, they had a congenital defect that they're not able to have children. They're just not able to have any uh, relations. And there are those who are eunuchs made by men, so it's, they were physical castrate, physically castrated. And there are those who made themselves in eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' use of eunuch language may be surprising at first only to the disdain directed toward the eunuchs in the contemporary Jewish culture. They, you, you will remember this. They were not even allowed to enter in the temple, um, the temple courts. At a second glance, however, eunuchs provided a fitting model for the point that Jesus was trying to make. Since they were childless, they could offer devoted and undistracted service to the king. While not for everyone, only those who were able um, to receive that teaching were, were supposed to embrace it. And then this is very similar to Paul's teaching um, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verses 32 and 35. I'll, I'll get back to that one later. So a study of Jesus' life further reveals that although he was unmarried, he did not live alone. His inner circle was made up of three of his followers, and he was accompanied by the 12 apostles, as well as a group of devoted followers, devoted women followers, Luke 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. Jesus was also maintained close friendships with others, perhaps most notably the family of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary in Bethany near Jerusalem. So as an itinerant preacher, Jesus enjoyed the hospitality of others and came into close contact with many who had need and ministered to them. When at last he gathered as, a, as the paternal head with his followers prior to his death at the Last Supper to institute the new covenant, he left a legacy to his spiritual offspring and presided over the new family of God, which he brought into being through his sacrificial death. In this, in other ways, Jesus serves as a model of one who dedicated himself to the service of the kingdom. So um, now let's get back to our notes here from Craig Marshall. And then you can see the New Testament. Um, so the transition from the expectation of covenantal blessings from the plural seed to the singular seed becomes explicit. Jesus is the single promised seed of the Abrahamic covenant. In Galatians 3, 16 to 19 said that. And those who are united to him by faith receive the blessings of the new covenant. So we're not descendants of Abraham, but we are descendants of Abraham spiritually by faith. 
Jesus' teaching explicitly affirms this transition, uh, eunuchs in the kingdom and the marriage as an institution of this age only. Jesus taught that about the primacy of one spiritual family, he upheld the commandments in regards to his family. Yet Jesus also established the primacy of one spiritual family. I mean, um, we think that Jesus was being sensitive here, not acknowledging his mother. Later on, when he is in the cross, he looks at John and says, behold your mother. He was still caring for her. He was still acknowledging that. But isn't that interesting that even, I mean, John wasn't a, a son of Mary. And Jesus is pointing now, you know, you care for her as if she is your real mother. Um, so Paul's teaching explicitly affirms this transition as well. He speaks of his relationship to believers in familial terms. I mean, we read all the way in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, it, it, it's a spiritual family. Um, he affirms that marriage is an institution of this age, and therefore we can be engaged in it, but not engrossed by it. This is his affirmation. Um, I, you know, First Corinthians, let's go there. First Corinthians chapter 7. I think that this passage is very key for understanding, and understanding the context of this passage is also helpful. Um, because you, you read this text and you almost feel like, oh, so Paul is really advocating for singleness here. It, it's, it says that it's better than to be, to be married. Actually, he's giving both has its blessings and both has its challenges. How are you going to use that for? So um, verse 29. Uh, verse 29 he says, but this I say, brethren, um, well, let's backtrack here. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give you an opinion as one whom by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Obviously, he's not just saying like, hey, this is not inspired. This is just me thinking. No, this is inspired. It is in your scripture. It is authoritative. I think that this is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, this verse is key here for understanding that. You will remember in the first century, the, the Christian church was highly persecuted. Um, with, later on with the Emperor Nero, he was killing Christians left and right. And so for you to be married, it, it, was, it was very dangerous. I mean, you would see your children being killed in front of you, they were hoping to have you deny the faith because of that. So Paul was just saying, you know, because of the current distress, because of the persecution that people are facing, it is better. It's good for a man to remain as he is. So if you're married, don't, don't separate. He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if, you have, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned yet. Such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, do you see the context? Paul is not advocating now, it is better to be a Mary then. He's just saying, because of that distress, and I mean, it is too true for some countries today, right? We know that there is intense persecution, and having a family, it is a threat, and, and therefore, you shouldn't be seeking to be married. 
Now, and yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy, those as they did not possess, and those who use the, um, use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For, this, for the form of this world is passing away, but I want you to be free of concern. And this is the key here. Paul is saying that both marriage and singleness will bring certain challenges in life. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I mean, we... For those of us who are married, you, you know that the time that you had before you were married is limited. It is divided, and it should be. <laughs> the Lord does want us to be concerned about our spouses. And, but for the single person, they have other concerns, and they can devote more time. That doesn't mean, though, that people that are married, they, don't, they shouldn't serve and be fully devoted to the Lord. Otherwise, God would never call uh, a, a pastor that is married to ministry. Right? And, and actually, it's one of the, the indications is that, well, if they're married, they should be the husband and wife, and they should manage their household well. So singleness is not the only way someone can serve the Lord. Neither is marriage. This I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So that is the whole point of, of singleness that Paul is saying here, is just the undistracted devote, devotion to the Lord. It's the same thing what Jesus was saying. They're made singles. They're not, they're not uh, eunuchs in the flesh. They're spiritual eunuchs. They made themselves for the sake of the kingdom. They were pursuing singleness for the sake of the kingdom. So he affirms that marriage brings in responsibilities of this age, but singleness allows one to more single-minded serve service to God. Jesus and Paul's lives affirmed this transition by example. Both were single and used their singleness to serve the kingdom of God. Though Jesus and Paul lived single lives, their lives will, were rich in personal relationships with the new family to whom and with whom they ministered. Uh, you can flip the page there. Now, the balanced view. Marriage and singleness are both blessings given by God. All believers live with different blessings and challenges in life. God is good to both in his giving and withholding certain blessings. The giving or withholding of a blessing is not favor or curse as it was in the Old Covenant. And I think that is the important distinctions for us to make today. That for someone being single in the Old Covenant, it, it was a curse because they weren't able to have children and to pass on their descendants. It is not the same in the New Testament. For example, some experience the blessings of wealth. Others do not have that blessing. And this was kind of the context what Paul was saying here, the condition that people have. Both having or not having wealth has blessings and challenges. People in both situations are cared for by God and given exactly what he deems they need in this life. 
marriage has its own blessings and challenges. It has relationship given by God to address the aloneness, which is found in Genesis 2.18. Now, um, why did God create a marriage in the first place? Genesis 2.18, for companionship. It is not good for men to be alone. Um, it was, you know, the procreation, uh, Genesis uh, 1, chapter 2, 15. Because I think there is a misconception. Uh, I don't know, maybe the Catholic Church has entered in our way of thinking that um, Genesis 1.28 is a command of God, is a commandment from God. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves in the earth. This is God's blessing humanity to be fruitful and multiply. He's not commending them. Otherwise, in the future later when the fall comes and people are barren, they're disobeying God not being able to have children. This is a blessing to have children in the same way in the New Testament. It is a blessing from God to have children, but it's not a constraint. God didn't create marriage so people would would be procreating. Otherwise, he would have created marriage through animals as well. That doesn't, you know, people could procreate, but he created marriage for the main purpose, obviously, having children is a consequence and a blessing of marriage that we should pursue. I'm not discouraging that. I'm not saying that it, it's married couples shouldn't. I would question if they don't because it's a natural consequence that God has blessed people with. Does that make sense? Are people, are you tracking? Okay. God created Marriage for companionship. So it is significant that that point can um, have important truths. Um, Now, marriage has a special way of portraying uh, the relationship of Christ and his church. A husband's love is to demonstrate Christ's self-sacrificing, sanctifying love for his church, according to Ephesians 5. A wife's help and submission is to demonstrate Christ's equality and yet submission to the Father and to the church submission to Christ. Christ has the same nature to the, as the Father and yet he submits to him. The church submits to Christ, so the wife is a portrait of the church. Yet to the degree, the degree to which this takes place as an individual marriage can vary uh, greatly. We should do that. We should be portraying those realities, but you look at some marriages and, and that's not at all what you see. Now, marriage is a temporary blessing. As I read before, our lives begin single and many people come to the end of life single as well. They lose a spouse. It will not continue in the age to come. It is therefore an imperfect foretaste of true fellowship that will occur between God and men in the age to come. Now, um, I found this chart on uh, Kostenberger's book, and I, it says, A Biblical Theology of Singleness from Creation to Final State. I think it kind of summarizes very well the whole thing of singleness and marriage here. So marriage in the creation what was the norm. God wanted that from the beginning, wanted people to procreate. It was the blessing. It was blessed to have that. In the Old Testament, continues to be the norm throughout the whole time, and then the New Testament, also the norm. 
um, there was one group of people in the New Testament time um, called the Essenes, and they believed that this group, and they even associate him with John the Baptist, that they were single. While recent archaeology findings said that they were not all single, they found women bones in their um, in their uh, community as well in Quram in um, the Dead Sea. So even you know the small religious group in Israel as singles that was not the norm. It has always been marriage. Now in the final state, what happens? No marriage. We're gonna be like angels. For singleness. In creation, singles is, singleness is non-existent. There was just one woman, one man, and God married them. So it was no, no existent. Throughout the Old Testament, it was uncommon and generally undesirable. There were actually some fears of curses. Is this person cursed? In the New Testament, singleness was advantageous. Why? Because of the persecution. And it was encouraged for the kingdom ministry. And then the final stage, singleness will be universal. Everybody's going to be single. Nobody's going to be pursuing marriage. All right? I think that summarizes the... So it has an impact on what one is able to be married. It has an impact on what one is able to do for the kingdom. It can create an intimate, sanctifying relationship where we can glorify God. I, I do believe that marriage does offer a lot of possibilities of ministry. It also brings with it many concerns and obligations of this age which can create tension in the life of the believer. That's what Paul said. And it, cannot, it can tempt one to idolize relationships of this age. Um, it is very easy for those of us who are married to um, see our spouse and, and, and put our spouse in a substitute of God. Um, just a warning. I thought it was neat that he put this here. Then uh, singleness has its own blessings and challenges. Aloneness is not only answered through marriage. You know, Jesus placed an incredibly high emphasis on one as a spiritual family. Singleness has significance that points to important theological truths. One, the fact that singleness is an acceptable way of life now is now in the new covenant is a testimony to the fact that the age to come has broken upon this age. It is interesting in the scripture where you always have that transitional period, right? That, you know, you see some elements already being seen in Jesus' time. Um, we had the work of the Spirit being performed through him, and then he is inaugurating, and the, the Spirit now it is in the church age, effectuating those things. And, and with singleness in the same way, I think, you know, in the old covenant, it was very uncommon, but now you see that more and more kind of pointing to what is going to be in the future. Again, it's still the norm, but that marriage is still the norm, but it is more common to see that in our days. The concept of eunuch in scripture reminds us of the theological significance of a single's dependence upon Christ for all things. Um, you know, our sufficiency is not in a spouse, but it's in Christ, in Christ alone. Singleness is a powerful way, a powerful reminder that married people, to married people, that marriage is temporary institution of this age. Um, am I reading again? No. Um, just as with marriage, the degree to which one's life, uh, one lives demonstrates these things can vary greatly. The state of singleness may be a temporary situation. 
um, Paige uh, Benton, I think she has a beautiful quote here. She says, I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. You see the balance in what she's saying here? Um, It's not that I'm deficient and I'm lacking something. And it's not that I am too good to, to deserve a, 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 to have a, a spouse. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. And it is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. If that's what God has for her, this is um, a good thing. Singleness has an impact on one, what one is able to do for the kingdom. While singles may not participate in physical intimacy in marriage, they might have greater opportunity for uh, spiritual intimacy um, than most people. I don't like using the word intimacy um, as much as referring to personal, you know, strong relationships among believers. I don't know. Maybe it's my Portuguese brain working here. I'm just like, you know, use a different word. Talk about close um, friendships, you know, f- close fellowship. I think it's, a, it's safer for her to say that. The gift of singleness enables one to use the situation in life to edify others. Just being single does not mean that one is more productive in the kingdom activity, but an opportunity to live and serve in a way that commitments of marriage and physical family do not always allow. Some do not desire to have a, uh, the blessing of marriage. Others do. Um, there, you know, and again here, there could be a right and wrong way to be thinking about that. There are some people that just don't want to be committed. They just want to have fun and, and have a, a life free of care. And, and for that reason, that's not what the Lord is encouraging someone to pursue singleness. He's encouraging them to pursue singleness for undevoted, undistracted service to God. God honoring singleness then is l- learning to embrace the blessings that God has given and withheld as a what is, what is best for your life right now and seeking to please him in, in that particular situation. Now, that brings us to the common struggles uh, for singles. Uh, loneliness, uh, particularly at certain times of the year. You know, I, I, I can attest to that. You know, holidays, taking a vacation, if you... If you don't have a family in the church, you know, sometimes and there are people in the church that their parents are not believers. They're the only one coming to, to church. And it, and it can be quite lonely. So holidays or taking a vacation, uh, weddings, watching one more person to share um, what, that which you desire, right? And we got to be careful, you know, pastors, when you're, you know, preaching, not to say, you know, that marriage is, um, yes, it is a good thing, um, but in God's way of looking, both are blessings, so that you're not conveying to the single person that, you know, you're, you have God's second best. Um, and brothers and sisters having children, you see your siblings, uh, it's a particularly challenging. I would say even more so, um, and I, I read, I don't know if it was Piper, um, Sam Alberry is one of, of the guys that I sent you a video of. Um, just a caveat, I do not agree with Sam Alberry in a lot of things. I, he's a single pastor, he's a, a British guy, 
moved here to the U.S. a few years ago. He's in his, I don't know, 50s, almost 60s. He wrote a book, Seven Myths About Singleness. So if you're curious, read that book, because there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, I do think that he tries to spiritualize things that I do not agree. So I don't think we need to do that. Scripture is clear and, and gives um, encouragement for both singles and married people. But one of the things that he describes really well is to say that, you know, singleness has a cumulative effect on someone. Um, someone that is single in their 20s and 30s, they, they're thinking, you know, I, there's, still, there's still a possibility, you know. When they're single in their 40s, 50s, 60s, there are other challenges that people in their 30s don't have. Um, you know, you start seeing more and more of your friends now that you used to hang out now you can't hang out with anymore. Um, someone that is elderly living by themselves. If a, a, a health, you know, a health emergency happens, it, it's having their hearts. So I think we as a church need to be looking out for, for these opportunities to serve and to be an encouragement to people in this fashion. Being single in their 30s and being single in their 60s, it, it's very different. All right, other struggles, big decisions. It is hard to make them um, when you're by yourself. Sometimes you need guidance. Feelings of failure, personal failure. What, what is wrong with me? Maybe, you know, what all the <laughs> stuff that people say to them make them think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh, uh, failing your family by not uh, producing grandchildren is a thought that often come. Or the tick, the uh, ticking clock. There's always the opportunity to be married, but singles often grieve um, at the end of the opportunity to have children, the loss of what could have been. Now, to this, I wouldn't even say here, um, Isaiah, that passage, those passages in Isaiah is a great encouragement you know, um, the Lord has um, given that comfort that we have a spiritual family in the church. Um, I, I remember Mark 10, I believe, where Jesus says, you know, there's those that, no one that have left houses and fathers and mothers that will not receive uh, eternal life in the age to come. But in this life, even now, brothers and sisters and so I, I think, you know, for me, I, as a single man, I remember the blessing of teaching Sunday school, and I felt like these people that I'm investing, they are my spiritual children. It is a comfort and encouragement for us that those who are single. For elderly women, they're a widow or they're single. Think about what you can invest in the lives of young women. They are unmarried or they're married that need some guidance. I remember one um, old lady um, in, in my church in California. Um, she never married. Uh, she, you know, I think she, when she was younger, she had a desire and she had relationships, but the Lord never allowed her to marry. Um, didn't bring the person, someone. And yet, um, she had a ministry with the young ladies that I was just blown away. And, you know, she, once she made a comment to me, like, wow, I... You know, I don't know the Lord would, give, have, would have given me children. I don't think that was ever on his plan. And I, I reminded her, uh, you realize 
that the Lord has given you all these young ladies to invest your life on. What an encouragement. You know, it is what Isaiah was saying. That is a name better than sons and daughters. You know, that is an encouragement to you. Areas of growth for the church. I'm going to real quick read here. I know I'm going <laughs> over time again. Um, teach the church about the realities of marriage. Don't downplay the institution. It is a unique union. Union. Um, it is a blessing. Um, don't downplay it. I see a lot of people that has written about singleness that they try to downplay marriage. No, it's not that's this wonderful thing that it is. And then the other extreme is don't over-exalt it either. It is an institution of this age. Most singles struggle because they and the people around them have improper concepts of the relative importance of marriage. Teach the church to cherish and to invest in their spiritual family. Singles often struggle because they're viewed as being the plan B until they get a real family. The reality is that they have a real family even as of now. The body of Christ is strengthened by embracing a a diversity and loving one another in different places in life. Teach the church to think how they can specifically love single people in the congregation. Um, Avoid these hurtful situations um, that come through ignorance. Help people brainstorm how they can integrate singles into the life of the congregation. Having over for meals, special events, not just to babysit or to introduce to new singles. I, I think that guilty as charged, you know, as the pastor's curse, try to be the matchmaker. It's, you know, the Lord doesn't want that. If the person is asking your guidance and, and help and, and opinion, go and help them. But um, don't make your life goal to be doing that. I encourage them to be integrated to serve God and let the Lord bring the person in their life. Spend time in discipleship, talking through decisions, giving opportunities for mentorship, being able to talk about relationships, encouraging and thanking them for their service in the body. There's so much that I like to to keep going here. I know that there is a warning that I, I, I do think, and you know, I'd encourage you to, maybe I will scan the chapter, just how people use their singleness in a way that does not glorify God. You know, um, we, we have a generation that I call, them, I call them the Disneyland generation. It's just, they're all about the fun. They don't want to get married, not because they want to serve God, but because they just want to spend more time uh, playing video games or whatever, whatever. They just don't want to have commitment. And my exhortation to you or to whoever is you have to be committed. If you're not committed to a spouse, you have to be committed to the Lord to serve him and to be using the gift that he has given you. Both marriage and singleness is a blessing. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful for um, our time here in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage, comfort, and challenge us. Uh, to think clearly on uh, these matters. Um, help, us to, help us to honor uh, the beauty of marriage as you intended and help us to honor the beauty of singleness as you intended. May all of these realities be a reflection of your work in our lives. 
we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.